So Jessica, do you want to tell us about yourself? I'm a functional developer on the JVM. That's my official self-granted title. I was a Java developer for like 10 years and then started learning about functional programming and speaking at conferences. And speaking at conferences is one of those things that kind of snowballs because when you speak at one, you also go to one and then you learn all kinds of interesting things, which gives you more things to speak about at conferences, which leads to better and better conferences. Right. So now I've done Scala. I did Scala for a year and a half. I did Clojure for almost a year. And for my next job, I get to choose one language community or the other, which is going to be interesting. <laughs> so did you find a job? <laughs> Several jobs have found me. Okay. It's kind of like I've been speaking and like participating in the local community and blogging and tweeting and stuff for about a little over three years. Um, and it's really, really come to fruition now because I really have my, my pick of places to work, like two local companies I quote-unquote interviewed with uh, in the last couple days, and by that I mean they invited me in in order to try to convince me to come work there. It's kind of overwhelming. It's, it's like a perfect storm of, I have visibility, and the demand for senior developers is just incredible right now. And uh, St. Louis in particular has a vibrant tech market and not nearly enough developers to fill it. It's very backwards my job selection process right now. And that's that's a wonderful thing for me. I, I have that feeling of the world isn't fair and I'm on the lucky side. <laughs> and, and sometimes that's uh, a little distressing. But then I, it's like in Evita. In Evita, she says, or she sings about her funeral that um, I'm undeserving of such attention unless we all are. I think we all are. Uh, so I, yeah, I'm trying to figure out how I can spread this around a little bit, but <laughs> it, it's great to be me right now. Nice. This hard work paying off, right? It, Conferences it is. are hard work. It, yeah, yeah. They're, they're hard work, but they're also fun work. Mm -hmm. Conferences have like the, the payout profile that I like, which is it's definitely going to be fun. I'm definitely going to meet some cool people. And then it possibly might lead to any number of different amazing things. So you at a conference or somewhere. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, ETE was last week. ETE, Philly ETE was a great conference. Yeah, I really liked it this year. It's really nice uh, being from Philadelphia and having a conference of that caliber like in our backyard. Right, and you know to buy tickets early. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that conference is clearly run by people who love running a great conference, and they haven't let it get insanely big. I yeah. think they're, they're more limited by the space. Like every year that I've been there, <clears throat> it's been in that room, so however many people that room can hold. Yeah, that's limited to like five or 600 people. But, I mean, other conference organizers would move to a bigger space. I'm sure there are bigger spaces in Philadelphia. Yeah, there might not be an ideal location. So. Yeah, I mean, when you have venues, it's kind of, there's the, the leap from hundreds of people to thousands of people. But like above a certain number of hundreds, you have a difficult time mm. finding places. I guess so. But Philly T, I mean, it was just at a hotel. It wasn't like... Yeah. It wasn't... So like, I think they, you know, I think they just really like the venue too. And so like they'll they'll try and keep it... Right. Which, I mean, if that's, as conference organizers, that's so much work. If that's what they like, then that's what they should keep doing. Um, like Strange Loop, um, Alex Miller grew it every year and every year switched venues until he got to where Strange Loop has been for the last three years, which is the Peabody Opera House and 1,200 attendees. And that space is just, it's amazing. It's very unique. And so he said, okay, that's it. I'm capping it. We're not moving again. We're just going to stay here. 
so that one sells out too. Nice. I'm really hoping to go there this year. I've been wanting to go every year for the past few years and I haven't been able to. Oh, yeah. You should totally come. So you spoke at ET about contracts and closure. Yes. Um, going from going from Scala to Closure, it was painful to lose the static typing in some sense. I mean, I thought, oh, no more compiler errors because even, even Martin Odersky makes fun of Scala's compiler errors because sometimes they're so hard to read. But very quickly in Closure, I came to miss them um, because Closure is dynamic and it just drives me crazy that I can't... I can't specify, or better, have specified for me when I go to call a function, what goes in, what comes out. For me, that's kind of the essence of functional programming, or one of them, that each function, you can see what goes in, you can see what goes out, and that's all it does. Closure lacked that until I found the contracts library, which is prismatic schema. Can you talk about what you were doing with Closure? At Outpace, we were working on a recommendation engine, like pick the ads based on high-level demographic categories of the logged-in customer who's looking at the website. And we had, whatever, microservices is a matter of degree, but we certainly have a service-based architecture and lots of uh, relatively small closure services calling each other over HTTP. Um, in particular, I got to do a fair amount of work on the event system because we counted the events, um, like show events, who did we show which offer to, and then did they click on it? And then um, later on, we noticed if that customer made a purchase. If they did, we counted that as a conversion and compared the conversion rates to our targeted ads versus random ads. And the I'm really fascinated by uh, event sourcing. I think that's totally the way to go. And uh, just working, looking at the world as a sequence of events that's in a queue. And current the current state is a sum of the past history of events. So, so that past you- being more immutable and then just... Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. So how does that look when you have services? Are you, are you uh, persisting your events to some data store and then using that as your point of truth or like I, I know I think it was Square a few years ago gave a talk about how um, the other services subscribe to a service that has some data and then if they restart they have to like get back up to speed with the state of the world like ha- where did the events go and like how did you sum them I guess uh, what we did was yes the events go into a data store and then there's various there were various other in our case it was mostly batch processes that every once in a while would say, hey, what else you got for me? And add that to like the things it was counting and the things it was aggregating. Uh, so that happened for reporting and it happened for like deciding which offers to show to which customers. It'd be like, okay, tell me about the new information you have. Okay, now I'm going to adjust my um, the, the weighting of each offer per customer category. Also, the events coming in went into RabbitMQ. So Another service, like, for instance, there was one that was, like, preventing people from seeing the same offer over and over and over again if they didn't click on it. And that one tapped directly into the RabbitMQ queues. So it was looking at the incoming events and could know what happened, like, in the last 10 seconds. But then it doesn't really need to know what happened weeks ago. So that one's, like, keeping stuff in Redis because if it loses it, ah, what matters is the super recent stuff in that case. And that's kind of the essence of, 
uh, I hate the name, microservices architecture, <laughs> is that each one is doing exactly what it needs to do and not worrying about the things it doesn't need to worry about. So you've got the don't show me the same offer over and over again service that cares very much about recent events, so it needs to be right at the front, but not so much about past events, so it persistence isn't as as important. And then somewhere you've got the system of record where persistence is important. And then somewhere else you've got, okay, my job is just to know within an hour or so um, the the correct counts for each offer and customer category. And that it can be a batch process. It can work a lot of different ways. Um, but you can prioritize the, the data storage and the mechanism for getting the data based on the needs of that particular piece of the system. And using um, schema, does that help with keeping the services, like the interfaces in sync between them? That's a great question. Uh, so at Outpace... Um, some places used schemas to validate uh, incoming requests. Uh, our system, which is the older part of the system, did, did not. Um, so I think it should. I totally think that we should be using schemas um, or types in a typed language um, as a separate component from the service implementation, such that both the service implementing this API and the callers of the API can access the same, in Clojure's case, contracts in the form of prismatic schemas. Uh, I, I want there to be a dependency there, like a code dependency, but I don't think I don't think that's a standard yet. People are still in love with breaking the code dependencies because because dependency hell is totally a thing. Right. But I think this is exactly the case for the dependency inversion principle, which is it's one of those that's one of the like eleven object oriented principles, right, that Bob Martin was famous for compiling. Um, and the dependency inversion principle is, is pretty darn confusing, but what it means is you should separate the implementation from the interface and then, um, the callers should depend on the interface. It's exactly, it's exactly what I want to do when I have clients with a code dependency on the schemas uh, because that the schemas themselves don't have a whole huge network of dependencies. I mean, they depend on prismatic schema, and that's about it. Uh, whereas the implementation may depend on HTTP libraries and JSON libraries and whatever data store and blah, 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 blah. You don't want to suck that in to your client. In fact, at Outpace, we had one service that was called a service, but it was implemented as a library that the clients just brought in. Somebody thought that was easier. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was the stupidest thing ever because then suddenly you all you need is like this data that you're calling the quote-unquote service for, and suddenly you are you can't test without Postgres running? What? <laughs> I didn't even know we were using Postgres. But, oh, my God. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm perfectly happy to make an explicit dependency on schemas because that lets me construct in the dependency graph who's calling whom. Of course, that only works when the services are in the same language. It's better than nothing when you've got it. Um, can't use it everywhere. At some point in the process, though, you do need to test the orchestration of all these things. So where do you see that fitting in? Testing that everything works together. Right. Yeah, that's really hard. <laughs> um, there's there's multiple ways to do that. I mean, we, we did have QA environments where we would spin up all the services. 
Um, we'd also spin them up locally, but I got so pissed at that. I just stopped doing it because, uh, we didn't have it set up in vagrant. Like the newer projects did have vagrant set up correctly so that everyone could just spin up the same VM and have a consistent environment. But in the old code I was working on, we ran it on our laptops and I'm sorry, I don't want my laptop to be a special snowflake environment that every time I've got the wrong version of Ruby, out of configuration because I upgraded my operating system. That should not stop me from testing. And spending three hours on that when all it fixes is my computer, waste of time. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, I'm perfectly happy to spend six hours on it if it's going to fix it for everybody forever. Um, but yeah, Vagrant as a development environment is one of the more brilliant developments of the last couple of years, I think. Uh, right, so testing all the services, you can do it in QA, and we did that. And then, but then in the end, I think with some, when you've got as complicated as an architecture as evolves, once you start letting people spin up services, and um, and that the architecture is actually changing fairly quickly. In the end, you're going to learn things in production. Let's not call it testing in production. You're going to learn things in production <laughs> that you didn't know about your system. For instance, at one point, as I was going through a service. And I was adding schemas. And the nice thing about adding schemas is that they're only checked when you tell it to check. So I tell it to check in tests. And then in production, if I'm wrong about that schema that I added, if I said it was a map with keys A, B, and C, but in production, sometimes people pass E and F, um, that, that'll still work. It won't care. Whereas in testing, if I get that, it'll tell me so that I can learn something and I can find out more about the code. But we had we had put in a post condition, a closure post condition to express some relationship between the input and the output. And that is checked in production and it failed in production. So we learned something and we rolled back really fast and you know, switch, swap hot and cold, go back to the previous working deployment. So the post condition was uh, in schema, like validating the that, types in production? That was not in schema. It was straight closure has a post condition Syntax is it like an ensure in Ruby, or yeah, or a, yes, or assert in most languages. Oh, okay, kind of like this. it's just expressed literally as post. Yeah, so basically, we added an assertion that failed in production, and hey, we learned something. That happens regularly if you let it. Now, of course, I would have rather it just printed a warning to the log, and if I were doing it deliberately, that's that's how I would do it. It's crucial when you've got an architecture that you deliberately want to flex with your feature development to add a lot of monitoring tools in production, to add logging and hooks that you can see where things are going. We use New Relic a little bit for this, but honestly, uh, if you're not writing a Rails app and it's not like like a standard web app, I just uh, I can't even get the documentation to make sense in New Relic for uh, backend services, calling backend services. We use Splunk to analyze log files. That was really useful because uh, you just you have to be able to see what's happening in production. I think Netflix has some really good tooling around this because you have to look at what's happening in production and just figure it out and see what you can learn about your system as it's running and hopefully just get warnings and not total crashes from that. Regarding like inner process communication, have you looked at like Thrift or Avro or any other language agnostic serialization things, type type declarations? Oh, sort of. So we do, <laughs> Outpace actually open sourced a library called Schema Transit. Transit is a closure, as in like Rich Hickey, 
um, came up with it, uh, data serialization, that it's valid JSON, but it's a lot more condensed and it's extensible in that you can declare type-like information about the data that you put in and then add readers and writers on either side. And the, the schema transit library is designed to add the, the readers and writers to let you pass schemas over the wire in what's effectively JSON. So I've looked at that. That's kind of interesting. The goal being um, you can, a, a front end could interrogate the back end to say, what kind of input do you need? And maybe like generate a form to ask the user for that. Is that anywhere along those lines? Yeah, it sounds like it, but it sounds like it's specific to closure or, or at least the JVM. Um, it, it isn't in the sense that... Uh, it, it could be in other languages, but it might not be yet. Yeah, but Rich specifically wanted it to be... It's built on top of JSON because there are fast JSON parsers in other languages. So yeah, probably right now it's closure and closure script. I think... I don't remember. I'd have to look it up whether there are currently any transit implementations available in other languages. In the readme, it says there's uh, Python, Ruby, and JavaScript. Well, there you go. What more can you need? <laughs> yeah, I, I like that Rich Hickey, he's very focused on, or one of his strategies is using existing things that are fast and well done, like the JVM and like JSON serializers, deserializers. Those are everywhere and they're fast. Cool. And um, other talks I've seen you give have been around um, property-based testing, um, especially in the one that you gave that was Ruby-focused. And right. also, also, when you were talking about contracts at ETE uh, in Clojure, it kind of felt like the same, like you were talking about adding these types to a dynamic language. And then at, towards the end of the talk, you were talking about how you could then um, use those, you could infer those types and use those to generate data for those uh, generative tests. Yes, I think that's I think that's like kind of the killer feature of that when you combine schemas, which are runtime type checks, and so they can be a lot more detailed than compile time type checks uh, with generative tests. Then you're basically using the generative tests as your compiler to thoroughly exercise those runtime type checks. Because Justin, you have a generative testing library, right? I, I tried to make one in RSpec and. Uh... Somebody else, uh, Nate West, has been maintaining it for the past few months. Oh, nice. Um, but I was just playing with, after your talk last week, playing with um, uh, Contracts Library in Ruby. And after your talk as well, I had, had the realization that maybe like that's the missing piece of ha how to generate that information for those tests, rather than like manually writing generators. Ah. Uh, what's that Contracts Library called? I think Contracts.Ruby is, oh, okay. uh, is the GitHub. Um, and it's just the, the gem is Contracts. Can we give the TLDR on generative testing? Sure. Justin, do you want to do that? Oh, uh, so generative testing is um, instead of writing a unit test where uh, you have input and output of a function or a method, or maybe you create an object and, and make some assertions about it, um, you give it some input and then expect some output. And you have, as the, uh, the test writer, you have to write out what that input is and what the output should be um, with property-based testing. Um, or sometimes called generative testing, you are randomly generating uh, input data. And instead of making an assertion about the exact output, you are uh, making an assertion about the properties of the output. So I really liked, uh, Jessica, when you were at Steel City Ruby last year, you talked about how 
you can imagine a a graph or a curve. And instead of um, giving input values and checking the exact uh, point on that curve for the output value, uh, instead you said just give it any input and then kind of draw a box around where the curve should be about and then check that it's in that range. Um, I guess the canonical examples are if you, like transit, for example, if you were to um, serial, serialize and then deserialize something, no matter what that thing is, you should like get the same thing back. Yeah. Um, if you were to uh, reverse something twice, you should get the same thing back. If you were to uh, randomize a list or a set and then sort it again, you should always get the same sorted result. Um, those are kind of like simplistic examples, but... Um, Right. Those are, well, the reverse and the, the serialization and deserialization, those are called round-trip properties. Oh, okay. Um, that's Well, that's the name in the Scala checkbook anyway, and that's my canonical source because I like it. Uh, property, so property-based tests or generative tests, you can think of it as um, instead of writing your tests, you write code that writes your tests. And, and in some implementations, they actually physically generate the test code and then run it. Although in the libraries I've used, it's just generate random input and run the same test over and over. And this has been a thing for a long time. Uh, Quick Check, which started in Haskell and is now in Erlang, is the, the original gold standard of uh, property-based testing. They call it property-based in Haskell and generative and closure, ah, whatever. Both are true because the generate the generative part expresses the input that's generated randomly from generators that are specifically coded to generate hypothetically all valid input eventually. And then the, on the output side, the properties are the assertions that you make, which is totally confusing, which is why I don't use property-based testing, especially when talking to Rubyists, because properties are, I, doesn't mean fields. It means assertions. Um, so... The hard part of property-based testing is writing the properties, is figuring out what you can say about the output to check it when, while you're writing this test, you don't know exactly what the input is. It's way harder, except in certain cases, like the round-trip properties, you can, the deserialization, serialization works really nicely. Uh, you don't find matching bugs in that case. If you have a matching bug in your serializer and deserializer, you won't notice, but you'll find everything else, which is awesome. Uh, but the combination with contracts is really cool because it lets you express the properties, the assertions, the things that should always be true inside the code where it's much easier to find and read and it just kind of makes more sense. So you can say things like the name is never empty um, or uh, the age is never less than zero or the um, birth date plus the current age is never like greater than the current date of right now or something like that. You didn't lie and say you're older, but also give your actual birth date. <laughs> so you can express um, invariance within a class as a property, um, as a contract, I should say, which serves as a property. And then all you have to do in the test is just call the function. Because if your function has contracts built in that say the input matches this, the output matches this, all you have to do is call it and see if any of those trigger and you've checked your properties. So it takes the hardest part out of the generative slash property-based testing 
puts it into the code where it's immensely more useful because there's there's research that shows that static typing makes developers more productive. Sorry, everybody. Hmm. It's pretty conclusive and been reproduced. Well, I don't know how conclusive it is, but it's been reproduced all over the place. Um, that static typing makes us more productive. But specifically, the most influential part on productivity is parameter types and return types of functions. Because then if that's specified, then you have a pretty good idea what you need to pass in, a pretty good idea what you're getting out before you have to read the code. You don't have to read the doc string, whether that's it or not. Sure as heck, I'm not going to another file, read the tests. Not going to happen. Just tell me right there in the function declaration what goes in, what goes out. And then people use the functions more correctly. And contracts, at least in closure, the contracts uh, as schemas look like types. And I really like that. It's right there. I've given it a description of what's going in. Typically, I give it a name, and then you can click through to find out what that name means. Uh, so, so the properties wind up being expressed in the place where they're most helpful. And then you don't even really have to read the tests. You just write the generators and use them and basically let your, let your generative test suite check your quote-unquote types. I think it's amazing. I'm I'm really excited about it. <laughs> Do you think that like dynamic languages such as Clojure and Ruby um, kind of suffer from not having this as a first class construct in the language? Like 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 imagine a Clojure that had types built in. You can have that. I mean, you can add core dot types onto your Clojure um, and and have a static type checking. I don't I don't think it. I, so there's there's positives and negatives to having it built into the language. One, you have to do it, right. so you always have it, which is nice, but you also have to do it, and you have to create the types all the time. There's a lot of constructs that are clean and straightforward in Ruby and Clojure, such as gradual construction of um, enclosure. You're, you're just using hash maps all the, to pass data around usually, and you can construct those gradually adding data, adding data, adding data in separate function calls because you don't have to create a type for every single input and output. So you can build things up gradually and then check the type, type schema in this case, at the end where you want to. Uh, you can do that in core.typed as well. So core.typed is a closure library that lets you declare annotations for functions um, and then it will actually statically check the types for you. And it's really smart and cool, but if you use it, you need to use it um, everywhere. Or it doesn't have to be everywhere. Just the more functions you annotate with types, the more checking it can do. Whereas with schema, you can drop in these contracts anywhere and they will be asserted right there. And it does not matter at all whether you've added contracts schemas, types, whatever you want to call them, anywhere else. Uh, and that that gradual, it's it kind of functions like gradual typing, which is something that like Dart tries to do. And um, there, there's some other languages that give you optional types so that you can introduce the types as you go along, kind of as your code starts to solidify and stop changing as quickly. Uh, because, I mean, frankly, when I was coding in Scala, um, there's a disincentive to change the structure of a type because you have to change it so many places in the code. You have to change it in the type and where you put it in and where you take it out and every other test that constructs one of those things, unless you're using generators everywhere, and then you can just change it in the generator, which I also think is great. 
do do none of the IDEs like aid in that? Because I know, well, personally, the last uh, you know, strongly typed language I used was C Sharp. Mm-hmm. And while I would never go back to C Sharp, one thing that I, I do miss is uh, the editor would actually just let you, you know, rename the type and, you mm-hmm. know, it changed it everywhere. Yeah, yeah, that is totally an advantage of statically typed languages is they work well with the tooling. Um, and and yes, the, the IDEs totally help with that. And like in Scala, if you wanted to, well, I know in Java, it's a little, I haven't tried the Scala plugin for like a year, so maybe, maybe it works better now um, in IntelliJ. But you could totally like add a constructor parameter to a class and be like, okay, everywhere that constructs this class now, just fill that in with empty string. And, and your tools will help you with that as long as there's an obvious default value but in Clojure, you you don't even have to mess with that. You you just don't. Um, Clojure's philosophy has a lot of just handle it, sort of. Let's make the happy path work. Um, and it does, it, it just kind of tries to handle things like nils and empties in a reasonable fashion. Tries. Did you write, start writing Scala because of a new job or did you was it because you started learning new things and Scala had the new things that you were learning about? That's a good question. So I got a job in Scala at Monsanto in the biotech department, which was really awesome. And that's when I started doing Scala full time. But I got that job because I had explored some Scala. What all had I done? I don't I don't remember exactly how I got into Scala, but probably some article that I somebody asked me to write or a um, I hadn't done editing yet. I did editing on the Scala checkbook um, as it like technical editing. And that's what got me into generative testing. So these things, these like various activities totally snowball. Um, I, I will say that I had played around with Scala and like I'd written some things about it uh, on my blog at least. And that kind of made me a great candidate for this job because not very many people know anything about Scala or certainly didn't two and a half years ago in St. Louis. But working in it full time was very different. It was it was a lot to learn. I I struggled with uh, learning Scala uh, to depth and learning uh, biotech, the science um, and the which is the business domain at the same time. I really struggled with that. It took me a long time to be productive in a new language and a new domain as complicated as when, when everybody you're working with has a PhD. Um, they have a lot of context that you don't. So while it's awesome to work with like really smart scientists that uh, are doing interesting DNA analysis work, oh my gosh, they make insurance and retail and customer cellular service look really simple. So if that's you, if if you ever find yourself um, struggling with a new job, just give it time. So what would you, are there some things that you would switch between? So what would you take to Clojure from Scala? That's a good question. Uh, one thing I learned in Clojure that the Clojure community has and the Ruby community totally has is a propensity for reading code. You don't have the types and you don't trust the documentation. And in Clojure, people aren't nearly as good about writing tests either. Uh, so you have to read the code. And people who do that, I mean, it's kind of painful that you have to read the code, but you learn about coding um, that that's just a great way to learn about idioms in the language. And that's something that the Scala community kind of lacks is really strong idioms. And like a lot of the 
the best ways to do things I don't think are well established. We need a book on that. I keep trying to talk people into writing it. I, I really don't want to do it. Scala, the good parts. Yeah. It, it'll be a lot thicker than JavaScript, the good parts. <laughs> there's there's a lot more to Scala that doesn't suck. Um, but yes, yeah. We, and that's, that's uh, it's tough for people who are just moving into Scala because when you, you have to read the code in the libraries, there's the same problem. The documentation is not sufficient but just because it's fairly fresh. But the code in Scala, I mean, it's kind of, dare I say, it's a little bit like Perl in that there are a zillion different ways to do things. And to write it, you only need to know one of those ways. But to read it, you need to know all of them. Um, that That's a barrier to entry to new people. Oh, oh, oh. I had something to say about the, the question of whether I got into Scala about learning or job. They totally feed into one another. It's like I learn stuff from my job, which leads me to learn more stuff, which me- leads me to new jobs. That's kind of one of the beauties of this industry is you can keep learning and everything just spirals upward if if you can do that. That's the best kind of synergy. Yes. The same way that conference conferences spiral but that like combines with the work spiral because I learn stuff from work and speak about it and then I learn stuff from conferences and take that back to work and then I learn stuff and speak about it and uh, but in general if people don't want to speak that's like totally fine blogging completely counts how much time do you tend to put into one of your talks that's a good question um Weeks? Well, weeks of evenings. And if I get two evenings a week, that's really good because I have kids. Um, Most of the time that I put into my talks is really just thinking about it while driving, while taking a walk, while in the shower, uh, laying in bed at night or in the morning. Um, I I never have trouble sleeping because if I'm laying in bed and I'm not sleeping, that's not trouble. I'm just thinking about a talk or something. Um, so most of my prep time is thinking, which is, it's hard to say how much of that I do. Wait, did you, did you just uh, justify insomnia? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I usually do get to sleep in a reasonable amount of time, but I am also perfectly happy to lay there for an hour. <laughs> that can be productive time for me. It's quiet and no one's bothering me. That I love it. <laughs> the other day I laid down to take a nap and I did not go to sleep, but I did come up with a good keynote for a Scala conference. <laughs> well, consider that a productive nap. Yeah, so I probably put in a good 15 to 20 hours on like op- direct, clear prep. I'm making slides or I'm writing code. More more if there's a bunch of code examples. Um, although the other thing that I will give anybody advice, if your code and your slides both need work, do the slides. The, the code, most people aren't going to look at it. And if they do, ah, it's demo code anyway. Um, you can come back to it later uh, if you want to. The code can be updated after the presentation. The slides cannot, and the slides will make a much bigger difference. Okay, there, there, there's an aside. But I usually spend 15 to 20 hours like on the slides and practicing, um, and then umpteen, I don't know how much before that, just, just thinking about stuff, which is the fun part too. Then I'll give the same talk at like three or four conferences, Plus yeah, I, I noticed that, and I, I think that's really cool that you do that. 
And also, I mean, I also confessed to feeling really cool that I was like, oh, I was at Strange Loop and saw her, the only <laughs> talk that only has one instance. <laughs> but, That's like, true. you know, you can watch the video. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love it when since Strange videos. Loop is, yeah, since Strange Loop, also that their videos are, are well done, too. That's also yes. nice because I've definitely, like, suffered through watching conference videos with the, you know, like, like this person, who is that person who's whispering next to the mic? <laughs> like, who are you? <laughs> That's ruining the rock recording. Who is that person? Yeah, but, um, I, I, I appreciate a- when they have a when they have nice AV. Yes, yeah. Strange Loop does a beautiful job. Uh, Philly ETE that talks the recordings will probably come out pretty well too. We'll see. And I am doing that Strange Loop talk again in June at KCDC. And the the best part is, well, I don't have to spend too much time prep because I'll just watch my video and then I can get it all know, back in my no, head. Really, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, often oh, cool. I'm, I'm pestering yeah, conference organizers. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'll pester them. Really, have you released this video yet? Because I need to give this talk again. <laughs> Please release my video. <laughs> and and they often do. They'll like reprioritize their releases if you if you ask them. Um, uh, Chuck uh, Chuck Wood, who runs uh, Ruby Rogues, and he did JS Remote Conf, just released the videos to, from that publicly. Um, and my complexity is outside the code talk. There's already a video of that out when I did it with Dan North, but I like the version I did by myself better. And that I'm excited that the video's out, but the recording quality. Uh, uh, oh, hmm. bummer. Well, but you're. I saw you're giving that talk at uh, Craft Comp, which I mean, that looks like an awesome lineup. Yeah, yeah. So Dan and I are doing that again as a keynote next week. Nice. Um, that's yeah, man. Doing a partner talk is really challenging, especially when it's with someone who's pretty busy and on another continent. Uh, Time zones. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. Like, we've been trying to find time to, to practice that uh, because I've changed it a fair amount um, since then, and, and we need to, like, re-coordinate and connect on it. And, like, the only time we could find was while I'm in the airport in Toronto, hopefully the flights are on time, and hopefully they have Wi-Fi uh, on the way to craft. So that's going to be interesting. But it's an adventure, and uh, both Dan and I can speak extemporaneously, so ah, it'll, it'll be good one way or another. Do you have a speaking background, or how did you become so good at it? That's a good question. Um, I I don't have a formal one, but my grandmother was a drama director at the local college when I was in middle school and high school. So I would like go to the rehearsals and just hang out, and if someone was missing that day, I would read their part. Uh, so I'm very comfortable on stage, just because I was up there a lot as a kid. Um, I also learned that I sure as heck never want to be an actor. Uh, because so many people want to do that way too badly, and I'm not willing to make those sacrifices. But technical speaking is is perfect because I, d- I just don't have the nervousness because of that experience. And like my grandmother taught me to project, and um, she probably taught me other things that I don't even know that I know because I was yeah. Young. I mean, I I definitely have a theory that you know. I mean, I I actually intentionally did this when I was in college, as I was in a play instead of taking a public speaking class so that I could use my credit for something else. Because I was like, I'm going to learn the same thing, possibly even better, by just doing theater. And I think it has a high impact on people's, on people's ability to have a presence and to, to speak in public. That's a great point. Yeah, you're probably right. Rather than taking a public speaking class, take like improv or something. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's the advice I've like I, I have and I've heard other people give to people is like just make yourself go to an improv class and just just go all in and because you will do like weird theater games, <laughs> but but it'll all work out and you know if you can be weird around theater people you can you know be yourself in front of lots of people, maybe that's a theory. That's a great point. Yeah, I did take I took like one drama class in college and was in some little traveling drama groups in like high school that went around to different churches and did little skits. I think all that stuff totally plays into it. I know I could never teach speaking. I I can teach functional programming because I learned it with an intention of teaching, so sort of mentally recorded the learning process. I can't teach speaking. I, I I just get up there and do it. So, hey, Jervon, do you have a pick? I do have a pick. Um, my music pick is a DJ on SoundCloud called J Davi, D-A-B-H-I. I'm in a very, like, ethnic music mood this week. Um, so, yes. And uh, my programming pick is an article on howistart.org. It's a closure article um, by Karen Meyer, I think is how you say her name. Yes, um, I love Karen. So, it's a pretty good article. Good introduction. What, did you, what was the article about? Oh, uh, it's How I Start with Closure. So oh, How, how I, start, I Start. Right, yeah, right. It so, it's like... It's like that blog style of, yeah. And Karen just released a closure book, too. Yeah, I just bought it. It's pretty, it's Sweet. Pretty nice. Living in closure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I got a, to work with... Oh, go ahead. That seems like a, a missed chance for a pun. <laughs> it's an are there enough release, closure puns? All the there could be closure puns. Our nice. pen, you can pick. Yeah, um, I'm going to pick Little Snitch, which is a, a network monitoring tool that you can use on your computer to see when apps are uh, sending out data. So it's kind of like putting out, putting a firewall around yourself um, so that you can see what your applications are doing and you can tell them whether or not they can can do that. So it's pretty interesting, the idea of like protecting yourself by doing your own network monitoring. Like if someone else is going to monitor your network, then why don't you as well? <laughs> um, so that you can see see what's going out and see what's coming in uh, and monitor your data. Is that the one, can you also make it ask you permission to use data? Or was yeah, that it looks else? like that. I haven't used it. I just I just learned about it very recently. Um, but it, it seems like it's been around for a while and people, like the testimonials are pretty positive. Yep. So my pick this week is just Vim Colors. Uh, I get bored with my ID's color scheme pretty frequently and... Vim Colors is just a nice uh, gallery of different color schemes, and it's updated pretty regularly. Um, so my pick is uh, a tool called EnvChain, E-N-V-C-H-A-I-N. Uh, you can store environment variables uh, along with a name and kind of group them together with that name in OSX Keychain. So I do a lot of things where I'm using different AWS accounts or different um, uh, DigitalOcean accounts or, or other cloud providers where I have tokens or keys that I need to keep switching between. Um, and I have a utility that I use called uh, use. So I say use, um, you know, HashiCorp, and I use those keys. Um, but mchain, instead of storing them in plain text on disk, it stores them in OSX keychain. So I think I'm going to start using this and trying this out. Uh, and I, I guess I'll also pick the uh, contracts Ruby library <laughs> that we mentioned earlier. I'm going to give you my my favorite pick. Uh, This is a book. It's called Vehicles by Valentino Breitenberg. It's a fairly old book. 
and it's very small. It's it's like tiny. And if you see it, you'll be like, oh, what a cute book. And what's more, you only actually have to read half of it because the other half is like detailed biological notes that you don't need. Uh, right. So it's not very much text. What it contains is a thought experiment. The premise is let's pretend we're building little vehicles, little cars out of like wheels and sensors and motors. And like if they see light, the motor goes faster. The more light they see, the faster the motor goes. And you start adding a couple of multiple sensors and then you and, and you imagine what these vehicles would do. Like if you give them um Two, light, two sensors and two wheels, the, they'll go toward the light. No, they'll go away from the light because the one closer to the light will move faster. Right, so that's the basis for the thought experiment. Cross the wires, it'll do something different. And then you add transistors and thresholds and the behavior gets more complicated. It builds up from here all the way until it's simulating vision, like human vision, like reacting to movement and color and shape. And, and it's simulating like human personalities. You can see this in the vehicles just from the wiring that you've hypothetically built into them. So it's amazing. It's ostensibly about little electronic things, but it's really about the human brain. And one of the theses is the principle of downhill synthesis, uphill analysis, meaning it looks simpler as you're building it than when you come back from the outside and try to figure out how it works or what the heck it's doing or why, which reminds me of a lot of software systems yeah. that I've approached. Exactly. So it's talking about the brain. I'm thinking about software. It's such an abstract thought experiment um, that everybody's going to get something different out of it. It was recommended to me by Nada Amin, one of the Strange Loop keynoters. And it's, it's an incredible book. And even if you just read like a little bit, it'll still catch your attention and you might think differently about the way you write code. So vehicles. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much, Jessica, for coming on. Where can people find out more about you? Oh, just Google Jessitron. Um, I'm on Twitter, um, blog.jessitron.com. That's where I hang out. You should have done that in a robot voice. Jessitron! <laughs> that was cool. awesome. So show notes are at turing.cool slash 47. Follow us at turingcool on Twitter, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Yep. Bye. Bye. Thanks for coming on, and good luck at your next uh, position. Thanks.